Welcome to the world's premier Black Crows podcast. State of America. Hosted by two of the band's most dedicated fans, David Hudson and Ian Rice. And now, let's get the show on the road. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the State of America podcast. I am your host, David, and on the other line is uh, our other host, Ian Rice. Ian, how goes it? I'm very well, sir. How are you? Man, I am well. I cannot complain. Uh, we've got a great uh, a great episode this week for everybody. Oh, unbelievable episode this week. Uh, you know, we, uh, we had... Uh, Miss uh, Charity Co. a couple of weeks back, and uh, we managed to get her very dear, very sweet mother, Mona Lisa Young, uh, on the line with us this week. And uh, what a tremendous body of work, and what a tremendous person! You know, it's just very, uh, very nice to talk to. And uh, you know, so far everybody in that family I like. I don't know about you, David. <laughs> it doesn't seem to be a bad apple in it, that's for sure. <laughs> All right, so before we get to Mona. Um, a lot has happened uh, here recently. Uh, we got a uh, re-release of uh, Mark Ford's Fuzz Machine, and then uh, the Greenleaf Rustlers, which is Chris's band that uh, I think they build themselves as Cosmic Country, came out with the live album. I ordered Fuzz Machine. It hasn't gotten here yet. I listened to it on Spotify the other day, and I listened to um, the uh, Greenleaf Rustlers album a lot. So, kind of, what are your thoughts? If you had a chance, I know you've listened to them. What are your What are your thoughts on uh, both of those? Well, I'll, I'll start with the uh, the Greenleaf Rustlers because as much as I wasn't really a tremendous uh, amount into the CRB, I was looking forward to the Greenleaf Rustlers because I liked some of the live stuff I heard otherwise. And uh, it really is, like you described it, like Cosmic Country. It, it's cool, though. I mean, at times, there's a there's a Grateful Dead vibe to it. But I listened to the album probably about you know four or five times through all the way. I really enjoyed it. I, I the 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 guys in that group, although I'm not too familiar with their work outside of Greenleaf Rustlers, they really come across as a talented bunch, and uh, it's just great tunes. I don't know. What was your take on it? I've listened to it a couple of times. Um, I guess the jury's still out for me. I mean, I don't dislike it. Uh, I do think it's interesting that of, of all of his CRB stuff and then this, this one seems to be overwhelmingly positive. You know, it's all cover songs, I think, for the most part. Um I really like the uh, No Expectations cover and then uh, Ride Me High, the uh, J.J. Kale songs. To me, those are the two standouts. And I know you'd said you liked Folsom Prison Blues a lot.
Yeah, that was the first one that kind of stuck out to me. But I also like uh, Big Mouth Blues, you know, uh, and uh, their their take on No Expectations uh, was uh, a little different than the original, of course. And that's I kind of like it that way sometimes. Sometimes when uh, you have like something as iconic as No Expectations from the you know Mick and Keith, it's it's better to go your own way with it, you know. But uh, the Greenleaf Rustlers uh, was what I expected the CRB to sound like, and I think honestly. What detracted for me from the CRB was uh, a lot of Adam McDougall's uh, work on that, you know, mirrored like 78 to 82 Grateful Dead keyboard sounds. And I, I wasn't big on that either. So that isn't in the Greenleaf Rustlers. So I think I, that's why I kind of gravitate to that a bit more. Same kind of vibe to me, but, you know, I like it a little better. And then there was the re release of uh, Mark Ford's Fuzz Machine. be honest with you i never had that much exposure to it i guess um, for the most part because of how it was distributed and you obviously know more about how that was distributed than i do what i've heard i've liked so far i haven't listened to it as much as the greenleaf rustlers but um pretty good guitar work and um uh, i think kind of maybe a a little bit of a a pickup in vocals uh, by mark on this one compared to uh, the first two albums yeah i mean it's my favorite mark solo album he recorded it somewhere late 2007 early 2008 with the fuzz machine band that was the band he toured with for the um weary and wired record uh they recorded it shelved it and then he went on to do uh the neptune blues club stuff and then put out fuzz machine in 2010 i've spent a lot of time with that record and i was excited for it to come out on vinyl i have um, like you i haven't received mine in the mail yet though yeah that's frustrating because i i try to buy from the artist when i can because uh, I believe you know that helps them more, and so uh, yeah, it hasn't gotten here yet. So it's two days after it was released. I think it's supposed to be here Wednesday. So um, look forward to hearing that. People that I've I've seen online say that the vinyl sounds really good. They've people are really complimenting the vinyl pressing of uh, Greenleaf Rustlers. So uh, I've, I'm getting that as well. So I'm looking forward to that. Ian, you know, the the Brothers of a Feather Run, whereas there's been some concern that, you know, there's not a lot of variety in the set list. They definitely shook things up a little bit when R.E.M.'s Peter Buck came out and they played uh, Seven Chinese Brothers and then the uh, Velvet Underground uh, song Femme Fatale. So have you watched those videos yet? And what did you think? Yes, I did. And I I think I always liked uh, the song Seven Chinese Brothers. And I was gravitated towards it because i thought it was an, an odd title for a song and uh, i like that song and i i was glad to see them do something a little more obscure and early with someone from rem because they were influenced by rem in that period and it's cool to see them playing with rem uh, someone from rem i think that's great and a beautiful rendition of that 
uh, Rich sounded fantastic on the video I saw. So um, I haven't heard anything. Uh, I haven't heard the version of Femme Fatale at all. I didn't see anything with that. You've got to think him coming on stage and playing with them would be kind of like if we were musicians now and Rich and Chris showed up to play with us. I mean, that's who they were really into. You know, I've heard them talk about being into REM and the Stooges and stuff like that. And, you know, Steve talks a whole lot about that murmur uh, era of uh, of REM a lot. So I got to think they were probably geeking out. Oh, absolutely. And uh, it was nice to see. And, you know, I've had to reduce my uh online presence a bit uh, these days because there's uh, there's a lot of negativity not that it's uh unexpected in some cases with regards to both the brothers of a feather uh tour and the upcoming shake your money maker tour and i just can't uh live inside that too much i i, I don't i don't go for that but uh i'm trying to stay positive about everything i really enjoyed all the brothers of a feather stuff i heard i don't know about you Everybody I've talked to that's been has said that Chris's voice has never sounded better mm. and uh, that they were, uh, you know, playing extremely well. And so I'm, I'm hoping his voice, you know, holds up, you know, with the way that he sings and the style of music the Crows are, it would it would tax anybody's voice. I don't know how, you know, he held up some of those long tours because there was not a lot of time off. And I mean, he he gives it all is all every night. I don't ever remember anybody complaining that, you know, Chris wasn't given it his all singing wise whenever you, you saw the band no absolutely not i mean uh for better or for worse he he what he ne- i don't i cannot recall an instance of chris robinson phoning it in i don't think he has it in him i mean he just he just loves me i think he would be that way if there were five people there or five thousand he just loves performing and loves singing yeah absolutely all right so this week uh as you, as you can tell by the title of our podcast well we got uh Mona on Skype and um, had a nice chat with her. We talked about, um, gosh, there were so many names mentioned. I can't keep track of them, but uh, yeah. her her career is just, it's on up there as far as like being a backing singer. You can go look on her website. And I mean, Elton John, Don Henley, you know, Solomon Burke, Bruce Springsteen, uh, Joe Cocker, you name it. She has just had a heck of a career. And for somebody that's such a... Uh heavy hitter in the music business, you know, in terms of the, the variety of artists she's worked with. She's such a down-to-earth and humble person. It really was a, a, a pleasure to talk to her. I didn't want to say it while we were doing the interview, but she mentioned that her first gig with the Crows was at Radio City Music Hall in 2001, and that was my first gig that I saw with the Crows. So we wow. had the same first show. So <laughs> You should have mentioned that, Ian. I know. Well, I couldn't slip it in, I you know, and I, I, I don't know. I didn't want to seem like a nerd, David. And then I remembered uh, I'm the host of a Black Crows podcast. Right. So. <laughs> we uh, when it comes to Black Crows nerdum, I mean, there's no denying it. So <laughs> yes, I don't know what I was thinking. I don't. <laughs> anyway, I think all of you are going to enjoy it. She was a, a delight to talk to, much like her uh, daughter Charity. And uh, as you'll hear us mention in the interview, we got Mona in large part because we had Charity on, and um, those kind of things uh, just build upon one another. And we have uh, we're working on some other guests. You can start guessing who some of those might be, but we trust me, we're we're working our contacts really hard, and uh, hope to get you some more um, people that were involved with the Crows. Uh, we we have somebody I know that has told us they want to come on in a couple of weeks, and so um, we'll have that person on. Hope it uh, pans out the way that uh, we expect. But uh, Ian, she was a delight to talk to, and um, I guess we will talk to you guys maybe in a week or so. And until then, here's Mona. <laughs> Yeah.
All right, Ian, um, this is a real treat for us. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we interviewed uh, Charity, and uh, that episode was extremely popular. It's probably our second most popular episode that we've recorded next to uh, when we had Steve Gorman on. And right. uh, we just had a had a blast with Charity. Honestly, one of the sweetest, nicest people I've ever dealt with. What do you think? Ian? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, that probably was my favorite episode I've ever done. And so we mm-hmm. told we told you guys that uh, we thought some things may come from from interviewing her. And just like uh, when we interviewed Steve, uh, we were able to get some more guests. And uh, because we interviewed Charity, and we had a good experience with her. It uh, it is a great honor to welcome her mother to the State of America podcast. The one, the only Mona. <laughs> Hi everyone. <laughs> How are you doing today? I'm wonderful. Good. That's yeah. good to hear. Well, Mona, um, whatever you did raising charity, you did right. <laughs> Thank you. But you know, I didn't have to that girl was just a perfect child. I mean, she was she only took one hour to deliver and I spent most of that time laughing at her dad and running around the hospital trying to figure out where the door was. <laughs> well, my, my wife, who's not a music fan at all, she listens to my podcast just to be nice to me. And uh, <laughs> she, uh, she told me about uh, how much she enjoyed that interview. She's like, Charity just seemed like a real good person. I was like, yeah, she was. She is. She really is. She's my comrade. <laughs> Matter of fact, she tells me how to do some things. or give really good advice. Keeps me in the know. Um, we help each other, you know, my experiences and her youth, you know, you know what I mean? Generation to generation. Well, that had to be really cool that you've got to spend, you know, a better part of eight or nine years, you know, on the road with her. Not, not many people that do what you do get to say that. Yeah, well, it's been at least six tours, I think. Uh, I mean, years. You know, um, of course, there's legs within that tour, you know, Um, sometimes out for three months straight. It was it was a wonderful time. Now, she had mentioned that it was it was you that brought her into the Black Crows. Had that all come to be? Well, my baby's been singing since she was three. I still have a tape recording of her singing, you know, her little piercing voice. (laughs) um, I knew at that time that she was going to be a singer. I knew it. Um, I come from generations of singers. I think I'm the one, two, third, and she's the fourth. And then we've got her children, which are musicians. So it's like five generations, you know? Well, Mona, let's let's go back a little bit to kind of how you got started in, in the music industry. Was singing something that you picked up at a very, very early age, or were you a latecomer to it? You know, uh, I often wondered myself how I remembered every song I heard on the radio. So I guess it was God-given gift. And uh, later in Discovery, I guess my mother, you'd have to give her that credit of uh, really seeing that it was something that I needed to look at. As a matter of fact, she just threw the tape recorder in my lap and told me to learn a song. Because I had my first child at 15. 15 and a half, maybe almost 16. And um, although I was a perfect, I was really good, you know, up until boys. <laughs> so when I started getting in trouble and stuff, you know, and I was just sitting on the front porch one day and she threw the tape recorder in my lap and said, learn this song. 
said, okay, you know, there's certain ways your mom speaks to you and, she, you know, she's not playing. So I learned the song and um, uh, the rest is history, really. I, I joined her group at 16 and um, very difficult harmonies. And uh, then uh, because of a, a restaurant that she used to frequent on Crenshaw in L.A., at the time, it was very popular called Lindbergh's Nutrition. And uh, they were way ahead of us, way ahead of the population. They had vegetarian food then. So um, uh, another singer by the name of Vanetta Fields, uh, her mother was working there. And her mother and my mother were acquaintances, you know, and they got to know each other. And uh, I guess, you know, I wasn't really there. So I, I guess she knew that my mom was a singer. And uh, and then somehow she knew of Vanetta through her mother and asked if um, she could try, if Vanetta could try me, you know, and consider me. Um, now, what, what, kind of, what kind of music was that, Mona? My mother... She sang everything. She was one of the first black classically trained opera singers next to Kathleen Battle and, um, well, mostly uh, you could say Marian Anderson and Lantine Price because um, Kathleen Battle came later. My mother sang everything. Uh, gospel, she was, you know, of course, um, in the church, you know, as most of us are. And she did um, a gospel album actually early on with Chapel Records. And then she did another gospel album. And that's the one that the girls sang on. But in her group, we sang mostly, I would say, some spiritual crossover songs, inspirational songs, very hard harmonies. um, Because the guy that was writing the songs... uh, he was really, you know, accomplished musician. So he had a lot of, you know, intricate harmonies. And um, I just had a natural ear for it, a natural ear. I did study for eight years as a child, piano, but I got away from it, you know, so, you know, it kind of got rusty and stuff. But still the built-in mechanisms were already there, you know, that God-given gift to hear harmonies. And um, so it just all worked together, you know? It just all worked together. My mother's music was always um, standard music, uh, like Muddy River. I know you probably doesn't don't know that song. Um, um, Autumn Leaves, you may know of. Oh, she was such a beautiful singer. Her her voice was just gorgeous. And I always, I went to all her lessons with her. So I kind of absorbed everything from every teacher. And when she finally got to the teacher, you know, that really gave her, you know, what she really needed, she soared. And I, I just absorbed everything. But she sang, uh, she loved opera. I uh, went to sleep growing up with opera. Aida in my head, you know, <laughs> playing on the hi-fi. <laughs> it was the hi-fi. <laughs> so um, I always went to sleep with opera because I was just so close to my mom. So even though she was singing gospel and always did, 
she was studying opera at the same time. So there that, you have that's it. quite the uh, that's quite the diverse background. Opera and, and gospel yeah. music. I mean, it's two totally different genres of music. Yeah. And uh, oh, and then I grew up also um well, staying with my godmother in the weekends, no, the weekdays. Because um, my mom and dad were businessmen, uh, men and women, too. Uh, they were entrepreneurs. Um, staying with my godmother, I went to the Baptist church. Going with my mom on Saturday, well, it was the Seventh-day Adventist church, or with my dad. He was a choir director also um, at another church. And then the opera. So you've got all of that. You've got Baptist music on the weekdays. You've got... Seventh-day Adventist music um, on the weekend, on the Saturday, and then you go to Sunday to the Baptist church. (laughs) So, yeah, it was all meshed in, you know. And I think that's how my, my, I guess, my knowledge of so many genres uh, and how to feel it came from that, you know came from that. And it enabled me to even work with Malcolm McLaren, who did, uh, I believe it's called The Flower Song. I should know that for sure. <laughs> it is called The Flower Song, which I, I was able to, you know, uh, work with him because of, of my training that I didn't know it was training. <laughs> now, so, I, w- I would imagine that all the background of gospel and, and spiritual music would have Contributed a great deal to when you worked with Bob Dylan because you 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 worked with Bob Dylan during his his uh, the, what they referred to as his born again period where he did more spiritual music and you were on yeah. the album you were on the album Saved. As how did you get to work with 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 uh, Bob Dylan? How did that come to be for you? I answer my phone normally, well, all the time. Praise the Lord. <laughs> hello is hell. Okay. <laughs> well, um, you know, I'm just joking with that, but <laughs> yeah, praise the Lord. How are you? <laughs> and um, so when I said, praise the Lord, and I answered the phone one day, uh, it was Carolyn Dennis, uh, who was one of his first gospel uh, singers, or I shouldn't categorize her like that, but, you know, she was one of the first uh, to sing the gospel music with him. And so... Um, she said, you're the one. That's all she said. I mean, we had known, we had kind of known each other. We had some encounters, you know, uh, you know, people by name a lot of the time. But um, she said, you're the one. I said, okay, I'm the one. I want you to take my place, you know, just cutting through the chase um, with Bob Dylan. I said, okay, that's great. Thank you, Carolyn, you know. And um, and from that point, that's actually how it happened, exactly like that. She didn't ask me, um, you know, if I wanted to, or she just said, you're the one. <laughs> Did I read correctly that your husband played piano on that tour with Dylan? Yes, he's actually my former husband. Okay. Um, he is Charity's biological father. Terry is a... Um, he's the kind of musician that, well, what he did when he was a little boy was paint the keyboard and played it on the concrete. So he's that kind of musician, you know, that just lives and breathes music. And uh, he's a fantastic musician. 
not being biased, I just, Bob asked me if I knew anyone that, I guess he got this brainstorm, you know, because at first it, he got the girls and um, I think it was one or two rehearsals or something like that. I mean, it was 1979, so, and I remember being at his rehearsal hall and he asked me if I knew anybody that plays gospel piano. And I said, well, yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> absolutely, automatically. And that's how Terry became uh, part of his band. And we became his opening act, actually. Well, Mona, um, I've always heard that if you can perform with Bob Dylan for any length of time, it, it builds you a lot of street cred because I, I've heard, you know, that he's, well, sometimes turn around and change the key of songs and, you know, change up the set. At least he does now, like changes up the set list on the fly. Cause- oh, my God. Yes. Yes. <laughs> now, you know, actually, I would have to say um, Bob pretty much gave us leeway and kept it pretty normal, you know, regular, except for when we did. It was early on and we did Saturday Night Live. He changed the background completely. <laughs> it was still the same parts, but you come in at different times. So if we looked a little, no, actually we were cool. But I noticed I was singing really loud. I think I was kind of like, uh, I knew I had the format. So I was trying to make sure everybody, you know, normally the top note pretty much forms the whole group. You know, if your top singer is horrible, then your group is not going to sound that good. <laughs> so, and and a lot of the time, uh, the middle carries the melody. But um, sometimes the top note can dominate. So on that, you know, that's why I'm so loud. You know, it was probably partly <laughs> nerves. And, you know, because once you rehearse one time on Saturday Night Live and then you go live to air, that's it. You know, you get what you're hearing, what is really live. Ladies and gentlemen, Bob Dylan. You may be construction worker working on a home. Maybe living in a mansion. You might live in a dome. You may own guns, you may even own tanks. You may be somebody's landlord, maybe even own banks. But you'll have to serve somebody. We were early on, but we did great. We did really good. That night, I remember, that's pretty much the only time. Now, the Crows, they changed it more. <laughs> They'd even insert songs that at soundcheck. <laughs> That's what Charity was saying. We had never heard of, you know, but, and then he, they might give us a day ahead, but there was times where, you know, oh, you can do it. You know, Chris had so much confidence in us, you know. <laughs> you know, a lot of good things happen when you're on the fly like that, you know. 
a lot of creativeness. And if you make a mistake, you better sing something. <laughs> <laughs> you know? How did how did you go from, you know, singing with Dylan and, and some of these other people that we're going to get to in a minute to deciding you wanted to go out on your own? Um, deciding, you know, things just kept coming to me. I actually um, started with Paul Williams, the songwriter. Started with him at 18 and uh, spent a couple years with him. Then I went to Joe Cocker, Bobby Keys, the bad boys, you know, <laughs> rock and roll. So um, that was a delightful time with Joe, precious person. Um, and then I went to Dylan. Um, as far as uh, solo efforts, Terry and I were always, we had a group actually, before I even started on the road with Paul. Um, we had a group of our own. And uh, then also they came to California. When I say they, I mean his friend, Billy Woodruff, um, brother Rolf Lee. They were the Dell Vikings. And Hal Ziegler was producing them as the Dell Vikings. And um, he wanted more, like a mamas and papas, I guess you could say, but with more singers. So uh, Brother Lee discovered me on the street one day. <laughs> Asked me just, hey girl, that's how he always talks to women. Hey girl, you know, <laughs> that voice, can you sing? You know, he didn't what's your name, uh, nothing. You know, he just said, can you sing? I said, well, I kind of was a little hesitant. And I said, yes. So the solo thing came, a group named Arpeggio, of whom I'm the voice of. And um, it's a long story. I don't know if you got time. <laughs> but just know that it was a Millie Vanilli kind of thing. What happened was uh, <laughs> it was a dispute. <laughs> There was a dispute, so the producer elected to go ahead and just, you know, because he was so in love with my voice, he just used my voice and created about three or four groups. I have to tell the truth. I've already put it online, so I'm just going <laughs> to tell you. That's the way that went, and I forgave him, you know, but um, hard to forgive. It took a lot of years. But um, that, I, I think that was, that was 79. But you know what? I have to still backtrack. See, it just kept running together. Just one <laughs> thing after the other and the other and the other. Because that's when music was just so rich. So uh, working with Robbie Porter, who brought over Air Supply and Rick Springfield. Well, I knew them before they were you know, worldwide <laughs> known, you know, we were hanging out and stuff and I was touring and recording with Marsha Hines. So we did do, um, Terry and I did a, um, a conglomerate album with her, the Ooh Child album. And we had a couple singles, um, that were in the top 10 in Australia that I would think that that was really, uh, the beginning of my first solo thing. Really high, you know, professional-wise. Mm -hmm. Now, I did record a record with my mom, you know, so <laughs> I can't leave her out. But that wasn't on the scale of what um, Marsha was. And um, and we did really well there. 
toured there for about three three months with Marsha her and her live across Australia album, and um, and then I went on to uh, I do believe it was Saint Tropez. You know, um, we were an awesome group uh, before Vanity Six. You know, which kind of looked the same demographic. You know, um, but um, we had some nice stuff. Did some really good music. And then I got signed to Motown after that because Destiny Records had um, dissipated some some kind of way. They just, you know, I'm still young, you know, don't know the questions to ask sometimes, you know, well, what happened to the record company? You know what I mean? <laughs> so just knowing that it, it, it just broke up. So, um I wasn't sure that the group was going to continue, so I just went on and took this other offer. I was working with Hal Davis all the while, you know, always doing um, demos for him and backgrounds for different artists on Motown. And so eventually uh, he just got me signed to Motown. And there's been a lot of stuff in between, man. <laughs> Hard to pinpoint, you know. Well, I mean, uh, you were you worked with a lot of uh, classic artists. I mean, I, just going down the you know the list of uh, artists you worked with is Lou Rawls and Junior Walker and uh, Solomon Burke and Ray Charles. I mean, what what were some of your experiences working with with that genre of artists? Some people you don't see, you just do their records. You know, um, whereas we, um, when I got the call for Don Henley from the Waters family, um, we actually worked with him, you know, and it was delightful, the inside job album. And um, then we went to Texas with him and appeared with him. So that was real cool, you know. Well, Mona, how do you make the transition to being with the Crows? Did they reach out to you or did you reach out to them? Portia Griffin, girlfriend of mine. She's with the Sweet Inspirations. I think Charity told you that on her her interview. We actually, um, she called me for the Jeffrey Osborne uh, tour. And then I recorded with Jeff with her. And then um, we went on. Uh, we did a lot of appearances. Sometimes we we never went out with Jeff for more than two weeks, but um, we always did weekends and stuff. So Portia left to go with the suites. And um, after I left Jeffrey, she called me for see now the sweets, the sweet inspirations thing with, you know, the Elvis thing was like seasonal. So. On her time off, I guess she got the call working with Don Was, of whom I've worked with, but she worked with the Crows on their album uh, that has the soul singing yeah. cut on it. That's actually Portia that got called for that. And then uh, when they were on tour, something happened with one of their singers and she called me. I had 10 days to learn the, the <laughs> what, three or four albums worth of stuff. <laughs> And so I had my papers, you know, and I had all my markings and stuff. And we did Radio City Music Hall. Oh, God, I think that was our first gig. I walked out just like any other musician with my papers. Because I was, you know, that was my my backup, of course. I knew, I knew the stuff, but I was so nervous. So actually, you know, let me back up. That was like 
one of the bigger gigs, but the first gig was somewhere upstate New York. And it was so mysterious because it was like I was going into the woods, you know, and there's this big white tent, you know, where they were playing and gigging. So I just watched him that that gig, just observed. And then I I went on to speak with Rich, came in the in the office, his hair came before him because it was so long and, you know, flowing and stuff. And uh, all I saw was this, you know, this man coming in with all his hair. And um, he he greeted me for the first time, you know, and uh, that's how I began. But, you know, dealing with um, Joe Cocker, you know, that was nothing but hardcore rock and roll. So blending in with um, the Crows was easy. Just had a knack for rock and roll and, and everything else, really. What were kind of like your impressions of the uh, of the Robinson brothers? Because you know they have a reputation for being the you know the fighting Robinson brothers, and uh, but you know Charity spoke of you know really pleasant experiences with them. Uh, you know what were your experiences with them like? Oh, I love them boys. I really do. You know, um, Chris is just he's an amazing spirit. You know, he's so free and carefree, and so anxious to learn than, you know, anything about music, you know, artists. And I mean, he even loves Missy Elliott, you know, <laughs> get your own, you know, he would play with us, you know. Um, well, that that's going to, uh, that's going to be talked about online. Chris is a Missy Elliott <laughs> fan after this. Oh, Missy Elliott, honey. Oh, yes. And, um, you know, um, well, they're, you know, they're Georgia boys, so they get it all. But I love them brothers. I really do. And their mom and dad, you know, bless his soul and rest his soul. I got to think, you know, I told Charity this. Chris and Rich, if anything, they're students of music and they, they appreciate what came before them. They're two boys from Georgia. I'm from the South, just like they are. And blues and gospel and soul music is just so much a part of our DNA. I got to think when you walk through the door and they know the, the Rolodex of names that you have performed with, I would think immediately they're probably in all of you. When their road manager first called me, she was asking me who I sang with, you know, because Portia had referred me and she called me and I, I said, well, Bob Dylan, Joe Cocker. She said, OK, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It was just automatic. So that's how that went. It was the easiest interview I ever had. It just I mean, Chris really felt like we were royalty, you know, from musical royalty because of my background, you know. So, and I so appreciated that, you know, because believe me, it hasn't all been peaches and cream throughout my career. You know, you can imagine uh, there's a lot of things that happen with record companies and different personalities throughout the years. So I really appreciate, I appreciated that. And it was really sweet. He announced that on stage. So, you know, we felt <laughs> real special, you know. It was it was just easy. I mean, I was happy to get out. You know what? I was shooting the movie Dark Blue. And that's wild because Kurt Russell is in that movie. Huh? Not knowing I was going to a group who's the lead singer is his son-in-law or would become his son-in-law. You know, it's like life is strange. 
Although I told Kurt um, later on after I, I saw him at his show, I said, you know, I did that dark blue movie. I was in the choir and everything. But you know what? I think I ended up on the cutting room floor. <laughs> and he just <laughs> You know, because he, you know, I think, uh, well, I still get royalties from it, but there's something they kept. I don't know what it was. <laughs> yeah, blending with them was just automatic. Put on my brown boots and just go, you know, <laughs> my high heels and jeans. And um, but actually, we dressed. Um, they had costumes for us and everything at first. And then uh, Rich said, "Yeah, just wear what you want," you know. <laughs> so it it basically ended up being jeans and boots and stuff, you know. But th- that was an easy thing to do, and and just to watch him on stage, you know. Sometimes the band would levitate. I'm telling you, there's a zone where you're just gigging so hard and everything's just so blended and everybody's spirit is in the same place. It's a, it's a, a point sometimes when you jam and you just levitate and they would levitate. <laughs> oh, I, I know. I know what you mean. I, I've, I've told people this and I think some people think, think I'm crazy for saying it, but I saw them one time and it they got into a groove and it was almost as if it was just me and them there. I just about felt like my feet weren't on the ground. And for like five minutes there, it was just like everybody else was gone. It was me and the band. And, yeah. you know, I, I haven't had that a lot with a lot of bands. I, I've had it with the Crows a few times. And that, that's a very yeah. special, very special feeling. I can't imagine yeah. like you had that you yeah. had the opportunity for that to happen for you numerous times. Yeah. It would it would happen to me um, with Bob, um, especially when we did Solid Rock. rock was jamming that was like whoa it was like a train you know and um and it would happen with the crows you know on certain jams and certain songs you know or mostly when you know they cut got in a really good groove you know and something it's just i can't even pinpoint it but there was times they levitated <laughs> you you obviously started with the crows in in 2001 so you were there um, when they put it kind of back together and, and Mark Ford returned to the group. And a lot of yeah. people regard that period of time as a very special time. I mean, did, did you find that to be 
oh, a, a, yeah. a magical time in there and the, with their music and things? Yes, it was very magical. It was. Well, I got to ask you, I, I figure you and Ed probably hit it off a lot. Wait a minute. You know that um, that American flag shirt he has? I got it. <laughs> <laughs> he gave it to me. I love Ed. Oh, my God. Jesus. You know, um, the last time I saw Ed, I actually picked him up. I was so happy to see him. I, I had picked him up. I grabbed him so hard and flung him here. <laughs> but, yeah, I've got that shirt. He just gave it to me. I kept complimenting, you know, on the shirt. I, I love that shirt. That is so cool. You know, and he just took it off one one day after the gig and just gave it to me. <laughs> well, let me let me ask you this, Mona, because, I mean, we we've all heard the stories of what a good person he was and how much yeah. fun he was to be around. But... I've heard Chris Rich and I think Steve say that he's the best musician they ever played with. Can you comment a little bit just on his musicality? Because I, I think we got to see it in the Crows, but then there was a, apparently there was a whole other side of him musically that we never really got to see. Kind of comment just on on how good of a player he really was. Yeah, he w- he was really excellent. He was really excellent. Uh, knowing piano, uh, I do know when a person is you know uh, gifted. He was gifted. He was really good, really good, really good on the piano. It's it's uh, some, uh, I'll say what they say, some big shoes to fill, you know, with the next pianist that came, you know, because uh, he was just there always. The backbone, you know, one of the pieces that is so necessary of the, of the band, but um, terrific. Every night, every night. You mentioned, you know, a big shoes to fill. What did the dynamic within the group change at when Ed and 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 actually Mark as well left, and and Luther and Adam came in? No, nothing changed. They added their flavor, and but they stuck to the guns of everything. You know what I mean? They stuck to the format of each poignant piece. You can't change their music. Right. You know when this dynamic is coming. You know when that dynamic is coming. You can't just ad-lib unless you have a solo, you know. (laughs) Right. Uh, Yeah. But then um, as the music grew and more songs were added, they were able to, of course, you know, be more creative in their own right. Uh, Luther is a fantastic guitar player. Oh, my God. He's just ridiculous. Mark Ford is just stupid crazy. <laughs> he would, you know, he's so matter of fact, you know, and so is Luther. I mean, you know, they don't, they're both really humble, you know, humble guys. They know they can play, but they don't, you know, they're not pompous or anything, you know, they're just so humble. Mark, he's so tasteful, you know, he's so tasteful in his licks and, and, um, so is Luther. I mean, they're 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 kind of different in their style, but they're both uh, fantastic. Yeah, Luth- Luther has a lot of soul. They both do. You know, I used to love to uh, see Luther play because he'd always turn around and cheese, you know, smile at us and stuff, and <laughs> you know, play little licks at us and stuff. You know, we we have a lot of fun on stage. We would have a lot of fun. 
Even Chris. Chris was a jokester on stage. People don't understand. He would turn around and do all kinds of stuff to us, you know, and and just laugh and, you know. And there's times, like I told you, that levitation, there are times where he would turn around and he'd be in his thing, you know, where his head is going back and forth and he's dancing. And I would see a totally different thing in his face, you know. His eyes were crystal and they were just, they were blue, but they were just doing something, you know? It was just, oh God, I was like, wow, I've never seen that, you know? And I'm not exaggerating. Um, There's some kind of something else that comes out of him on stage, you know, especially when he's in that groove and you can't stop him from dancing. Oh my God. Now, I mean, the Black Crows fan base is is very similar to, like, the Grateful Dead or something, where they have, like, a, a, a really dedicated following. I mean, where, how were the fans towards you particularly? They were always so responsive, you know? So I guess it was just always blended, and, and uh, they just all loved the Crows, <laughs> you know? We know a lot of times we, we unfortunately don't get to know some of the people that, that play an important role, like, you know, some bands have like a second guitarist that's not a part of the band, but there's a touring guitarist. And a lot of times you don't really get to know the backup singers. I feel like with the Crows, y'all were just as much a part of the show as anybody else. And Chris seemed to always point that out, uh, you know, with recognizing you guys. And you added a whole lot, you know, to the music. And I always thought that was kind of cool that you guys were just kind of always thought of basically as members of the band. Is that something you always got with other acts or were the crows that they kind of go above and beyond with recognizing you and, you know, and giving you the, the respect that you should have? They always made us feel uh, really good. And the fans were just terrific. You know, they, they became fans of ours. You know, uh, we never stepped beyond our, our boundary. You know, but um, they want autographs every night. You know, they didn't care. They wanted our autograph, too. So, yeah, they made us feel really, really good. They did. Made us feel really good every night. We had a wonderful time on stage. So much great music, you know, um, especially when you're dependable and you know that, you're. That, you know, they know you're going to be there, you know. You become like a, a piece of the circle. And if that one piece is, is out of place, you know, it's just like cutting a pie and that slice is missing. So <laughs> we we were always just um just super cool. And they just took to charity, you know, they just took to charity because Amy Finkel told me, their road manager, she said, now, Mona, if they don't, if she doesn't work out, then, you know, I'm going to have to get somebody else. I said, okay, it's going to be all right, you know. (laughs) They loved her from the start. Oh, we had so many special moments and times, you know. We even, Chris and Kate, at the time they were together, they even made us tacos. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) We went to their their brownstone uh, in Soho, I think it was. And they made us tacos. And that was early on when Charity first started. So we were always inclusive. I mean, Kate would buy us um, makeup, you know, and bring back souvenirs from Spain and all kinds of 
stuff. So we were always, you know, we always felt comfortable. Always. Charity mentioned to us how much respect she had for Kate and how how nice Kate was to all of you. Oh, Kate's a homegirl. That girl is so saucy. She's just sweet. You know, she's just so sweet. Sweet, sweet, sweet girl. And very, you know, that whole, all of them, the whole Han and, and Russell family are all just beautiful people. They, although they are royalty, definitely royalty. They don't act like it, you know. I remember we went to um, Chris's birthday party out in Malibu, and Kurt came, and he just sat down at the table with me and Charity. We were sitting by ourselves. He said, so, tell me about you guys, you know, (laughs) just out of the blue, you know. And I'm like, whoa, you know, okay, this is Kurt Russell directed right in front of you, like two feet away from you. He wants you to talk. Start talking. (laughs) (laughs) Even though I've been with so many stars, you know, I always give them their respect. And, you know, when I was coming up uh, in the background business, I guess you could say, of singers, um, you there was a certain etiquette, you know. Sometimes you couldn't even talk to the star, you know. It was always the contractor, you know. Although you still respect the person that brought you there. But now it's more free, you know, and people... Through the years, they know they can trust you. They know you're not going to steal their gig or nothing, you know. So, um, but to get back, you know, they're they're just really sweet, sweet people. And and we always felt, you know, special. We really did. I mean, Goldie would come and hang out in our dressing room, you know, when she was (laughs) around. She has actually come and hung out in the dressing room and sat down. And then... uh, Giving her her respect, knowing, I mean, she and Kurt would dance on the side of the stage, just going, 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 you know. And then um, one day she, uh, I think we were in San Francisco, she said, good show, girls, good show, you know. (laughs) So, and and we weren't, you know, we kind of gave them their space, you know, because after a big concert, you don't want to a lot, you know, deal with because you're tired, you're sweaty. You know, and all kinds of stuff. So we emphasize their space. You know, sometimes we walk up in their little huddle, you know, or whatever. But for the most part, we let them. You know, we respect them to have their their independence. You know, uh, and um, I can't tell you how wonderful that gig was. <laughs> Just wonderful. Let me ask you this: Charity told us that her favorite song to play. To sing back up on live was only halfway to everywhere. What was your favorite? I love halfway to everywhere. That was a <laughs> lot of fun. But like I, I, you know, so many good songs for so many good reasons, you know, and and so many moments of music, you know, that you know how you're gonna feel. Um, one song that a lot of people like is soul singing. You know, they really love it because, you know, it kind of talks to them and they can also just get off and, you know, just, you know, really get off, you know, and dance and stuff. And I used to love to see the, the people dance, you know, and then there you got your your faces that you would see from city to city, you know, they would be right there in the front from I'm not lying from city to city. So, um. Soul singing was one I enjoyed 
One that I don't know how popular it was when it was released is Bring On. Mm -hmm. I haven't listened to a lot of the live stuff, but I know there's probably a good one there somewhere. (laughs) You know, that that we sound good. But um, um, we sounded good every night. But um, soul singing, I think. Yeah, all because we could shout. (laughs) Now, God got it. God's got it too. Anything God, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, but there's so, so many spiritual lyrics in their songs, you know, and some you got to figure out, okay, what is he talking about? Oh, yeah, okay. You know, like Wounded Bird and just different eclectic kind of lyrics, you know, that you really don't put together. Oh, God. I mean, there's so many songs that I didn't even sing on that I love to hear. Ballad and Urgency and, you know, just so many. I was I loved it when they they included us in uh, Under a Mountain. I thought that was I just love to sing that because I felt like I could just drag it, you know, (laughs) you know, in the background because, you know, perfume and volume, you know. You just adapt to every song in the mood thereof, you know, that it, it gives you. What are you what are you working on these days? What's your current uh, current projects looking like? Well, I've taken a hiatus for quite some time, but um, I've done some spot things, you know, in the studio. But for the most part, I'm looking forward to working with um, Stacey Pearsa, who is the, the wife, the widow, actually, of Elliot Wolf. The great Elliot Wolf. Um, Elliot Wolf uh, wrote Straight Up for Paul Abdul and um, Cold Hearted Snake. He basically handed her her career, you know. So, <laughs> and, and you sang you sang on that first Paul Abdul album, didn't you? I sang on um, the second one. Okay, but I did a lot of her demos. I can't remember the name of the album right now, but. Yeah, I did. I did a lot of songs that got placed with Elliot. He's a great songwriter. Uh, Wilson Phillips has covered his music as well as Aretha. So his wife, Stacy Pierce, who is a very good friend of mine, um, she actually almost won. I think it was uh, Star Search when she was young. <laughs> She'd kill me if she knew I was telling you guys. <laughs> but she's a, a prodigy and um, also a really great uh, lyricist. And um, we're we're looking forward to doing some things together. How did you get the uh, Rick D's jingle? Uh, because that's kind of like one of the you know kind of like one of the iconic shows from. Uh, from the eighties, you know, Casey Kasem and Rick D's. And then you had that, that jingle that was played a lot, you know, coming in and out of, out of breaks. Oh, there was like three or four of them. Um, Al Capps, who is also a jingle writer and also a producer. I mean, he's done a lot. I can't tell you everything. Um, but, um, a lot of the time, the songwriters also write the jingles, write jingles, you know, and they cross over and they do a lot of different things, you know. So I, I do believe that Al Capps must have been initial in that. And I actually, as I think about it, I think I performed somewhere with Rick Dees and he gave us these underwear that said Rick D's sleeves or something. <laughs> you know, they were, you know, swag, you know. 
I mean, I've done a lot of commercials. Jeff Claus, who is Dave Claus's brother, saxophone mm-hmm. player, he has a, a jingle house. And I've done some with him as well as several other people. And then I've also had the British Airways commercial that was so big. recorded it for Yanni's Dare to Dream album because he, you know, of course there's red tape with different things. You know, you can't own everything just because you produced or sang something. Um, You got to re-record it to have the full control. I first did that commercial. um, Malcolm McLaren, who who was my buddy, I just love so much. He had the concept. It was like 3,000 people in that commercial and uh, won the Clio Award and it brought back that piece. You'll hear it everywhere. I mean, in all kinds of commercials now and everything, it was laying dormant until we did it. I was just so happy that Malcolm had so much confidence in me. There was other people. There's like India Davenport, who's a great singer. She used to be with the brand new heavies. And, um, you know, we worked together with Malcolm also at Dave Stewart's studio. I got to tell you this story now. I got called by Richard Feldman, another writer-producer out in um, Encino, I think it was, to do a a session of whom I did sessions with all the time. So all of a sudden, there's a call that comes to his house, not knowing that Dave Stewart lived across the street. So... Richard asked me through the sound booth, he said, do you sing? Can you do um, vocalises, you know, like opera-like, you know? And of course I can. I was raised by an opera singer, you know? So I said, well, yeah. So he said, you mind switching sessions for a minute? I want you to go up the hill across the street. You know, they want you to do some of that stuff up here. I said, okay. So I switched places with the lead singer of Bananarama, the group (laughs) Bananarama was up there with Malcolm and Dave and so I switched places with her and I went with Malcolm and Dave and she went with Richard how wild is that (laughs) just walked across the street and it developed from there and that's where you know our relationships start growing and uh, that became you know the project that would staple us together, you know, that uh, British Airways commercial. And then Yanni, you know, um, when I re-recorded it for Yanni, it was Grammy-nominated album. You know, uh, it's basically like a signature song for him now. And um, that's the way that went. Music will take you a lot of places. <laughs> but it's definitely taking you a lot of places. It hasn't gotten yeah. me anywhere. But uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mona, this was a this was a real pleasure. I, we definitely know now where Charity gets it all from. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> As my 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 heart, my love. She is just everything that she you get from her. That's her. You know, no no put on or nothing me the same i mean we're christians and we're we're humble we're humble people and she's my best friends that's my girl (laughs) 
Well, we we sincerely can't thank you enough for for doing this. Uh, it it is something we've been looking forward to doing for a while. And um, after uh, you know we interviewed Charity, and it looked like you know you were going to be a possibility. Uh, Ian and I have been just kind of texting each other back and forth, and I've kind of teased it with a few people online that you, we we're going to be interviewing, and everybody's like, "Oh, I can't wait to hear her stories." And uh, <laughs> you did not disappoint one whatsoever. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Mona. Normally, uh, when we when we close the show out, we let whoever is our guest pick a song for us to play out. So uh, you've mentioned a couple that you like. What what's what do you want us to play out with? You tell us. We have we have live recordings with you all over them. So you know, I think I think Soul Singing would be a, a lift uplifting song to go out with. You know, especially in these times now. Well, you got it. You got it. And really, we, we truly appreciate you coming on. It's been an absolute well, pleasure. I thank you so much. I appreciate you guys so much. Thank you so much. We want to thank Mona for uh, coming on. Uh, a real pleasure. And uh, to play us out, here is a live recording of Soul Singing. And stay tall, everyone. Oh